share the sitting. My name is Jim Bronson, and I've had the pleasure of being part of this group for about five years. And prior to that, Spirit Rock, and prior to that, um, kind of going back through Krishnamurti and and uh, theosophy and um, meditation more in a reflective mode. And so this evening I've been asked to give a Dharma talk that has some uh, information in it that will give you a sense of um, kind of some of the basic principles that Vipassana practice and also Buddhist philosophy is incorporates. So I very confidently and maybe somewhat foolishly decided that I would talk about liberation tonight. If you look on the Spirit Rock website, they tell you in two paragraphs a lot about Vipassana and about uh, Buddhism. And at the very end, they say, and um, the goal of Vipassana practice and the Buddhist way of understanding is to achieve liberation. And that's the end of what they say about liberation on the website. So tonight I'm going to say a few things, read some readings from people who have commented about uh, Buddhist-inspired material and also um, some material from the suttas about the topic of liberation. This is from material in the Zen tradition translated by Robert Aiken. How boundless and free is the sky of awareness. How bright the full moon of wisdom. Truly, is anything missing now? Nirvana is right here before our eyes. This very place is the lotus land, the very body, the Buddha. How bright the full moon of wisdom and how bright the full moon with us tonight. I hope you noticed it on the way in as I was driving up 101. It was tucked in some clouds. You could see the top half of the circle and the bottom of it was tucked in some clouds looking like it was flowers in a basket. So tonight we have a full moon to remind us that we're creatures of nature that we have bodies and that we live in a physical world. And we 
have shared a sitting which many teachers say is being in the body, being with the body as the body. One of the very special experiences I had uh, in exploring what I I call kind of uh, exploring or researching or discovering um, the Dharma in this area was in going to a place called Abhyagiri Monastery. And it's in Northern California. It's in the Thai forest tradition. The monks practice very similarly to the tradition that was followed from the time of the Buddha and was carried into the countries in Southeast Asia. And so we sitting here tonight under our full moon go back many full moons in an unlinked, unbroken, a linked, unbroken chain all the way back to people that sat under the full moon on the plains of northern India and were inspired by the Buddha. One of those people was a Thai monk named Ajahn Mun. He was born in 1879 and died in 1949. He traveled extensively in Thailand, Burma, and Laos. And his teachings are passed down mostly verbally. There was only one book that was written of his teachings. It was some of uh, the talks that he had given that students compiled. When he died, his students thought that he must have written a lot because everywhere he went, he had such wisdom to offer. And so they eagerly went into his little hut and looked for the papers where he must have written this stuff down. And what they found was only one poem. And I'm going to read you the poem. It's called The Ballad of Liberation. Once I was a man who loved himself and feared distress. I wanted happiness beyond the reach of danger, so I wandered endlessly. Wherever people said that happiness was found, I longed to go. But wandering took a long, long time. I was the sort of man who loved himself and really dreaded death. I truly wanted release from aging and mortality. Then one day I came to know the truth, abandoning the cause of suffering and compounded things. I found a cave of wonders, of endless happiness, my body. As I gazed throughout the cave of wonders, my suffering was destroyed, my fears appeased. I gazed and gazed around the mountainside. It's experiencing unbounded peace. I feared if I were to go and tell my friends, 
they'd say I'd gone insane. I'd better stay alone, engaged in peace, abandoning my thoughts of contact, then to roam around, a sycophant, both criticized and flattered, exasperated and annoyed. But then there was another man afraid of death, his heart all withered and discouraged. He came to me and spoke frankly in a pitiful way. He said, you've made an effort at your meditation for a long time now. Have you seen it yet, the true dharma of your dreams? He asked to stay with me, so I agreed. I said, I'll take you to a massive mountain with a cave of wonders, free from suffering and stress. Mindfulness immersed in the body. You can view it at your leisure to cool your heart and end your troubles. This is the path of the noble lineage. It's up to you to go or not. If the Dharma is with the heart throughout time, that's the end of attachment with no more cause for suffering. Remember this. It's the path of the mind. You won't have to wonder spinning around till you're dizzy. Perfectly still, the mind source neither thinks nor interprets. It stays only with its own affairs. No expectations. No need to be entangled or troubled. No need to keep up its guard. Sitting or lying down, one thinks at the source, mind, released. So this is the poem, the one written piece of work that Ajahn Mun put together over his lifetime. Uh, Ajahn Amaro is the co-abbot, or the, I think they call him the co-abbot, at Abhyagiri. And he practiced in Thailand for many years, and then in England, and then moved to Northern California, actually to San Francisco, and then to Northern California. And uh, he has an object that he uh, brought from Thailand that to me, had so much power with it because it was used by the monks in Thailand. In fact, it was about the only possession that they had when they went on these long journeys. And the journeys were many hundreds of miles and would go through the jungle, through uh, rice fields, uh, up and over hills and through the mountains. And when they would go, they would have their robe, their begging bowl, and then this one object. And it's called a gloat. And it's, it looks like a parasol. It has, uh, you can open it up like an umbrella, and it has a mosquito netting that goes around the side. And so when it came time to sit, wherever they were, they would stop on the side of the road and, 
either hold their gloat and drop down the mosquito netting and thereby have undisturbed meditation time. Or they would find a tree that had a low-hanging branch and they would hang the gloat from the tree. And uh, Ajahn Amaro was very proud to show me that it was an advanced gloat because you could turn the handle and remove it so you didn't have the handle in front of your face as you sat. And this was the traveling material. This was the tent, the home, the traveling home. I think about this gloat as I (laughs) see the kind of things that we use in our travels, the encasings, the, the, uh, the pieces that keep us from our environment. So that's the Ballad of Liberation. And I take some things out of it. One of the things I take out of it is the statement at the end It says, sitting or lying down, one thinks at the source, mind, released. So for me, liberation has that aspect to it. The discovery, you might call it wisdom, the perception that in this body is access to the release. If you remember, those of you who were here last week, Carolyn Dilly talked about that in our one-fathom body we have everything we need for liberation. So if we have everything we need for liberation and we have the wisdom to see that it's just here, is that it? Do we just have to perceive? Do we just have to see clearly that it is just here under the full moon of March in this room with these people? My liberation of sorts came a couple of years ago. I had owned and managed a company since 1985, which gave me lots of freedom. I had a staff that was quite capable and they allowed me to pursue things that I needed to pursue. And it was really a gift to have that company. And it was hard to let it go But one by one, the staff seemed to find other direction and be interested in other things and have excellent job offers. And if you remember two years ago, if uh, you had the barest essentials, you could get an excellent job. And so I noticed the staff being enticed by Internet startups and other excitement going on in the valley. And I had this feeling, can this, can I let go of this? Which had been such freedom for me since 1985. And 
So one by one, the staff kind of went off their own direction, and uh, I was left. And I remember thinking how odd to not wake up in the morning and have a crisis, not have something very compelling that needed to be unsnarled or resolved. Or We went through periods of time where making payroll was a big deal. Someone once told me that you haven't really owned your company until you've struggled to make payroll at the end of the month. And uh, my experience was you hadn't really owned a company until you had missed a payroll at the end of the month. So I let it go, and I devoted some time to working with young people. And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about this teen program that we're having at our Sangha. Teens are wonderful. They're they're not seeds. They've already begun. And yet they're still very flexible and very uh, able to be given direction, given ideas, given resources. Remember when I was a teen, my uncle was one of my great heroes, and he would come from his travels around the world with his coins that I had never seen before and stories. And and when I went off to college, I asked my uncle what he would do if he had his life to do over again. What wisdom had he gained? And he said that he would be an oceanographer. He really thought that was the, the peace that the world needed. And sure enough, as I finished college, the application went into the oceanography program. And I enrolled. And I finished a graduate degree in oceanography and practiced for about a year and a half And suddenly I looked around and I thought, this isn't me. I was spending so much time in the computer center and so much time out in remote places on ships that were tossing and plunging through oceans and ice. And and, uh, I just, I had such a a funny awakening. I I just had to laugh at myself. I, I had heard the words, I would be an oceanographer, and inexorably I just kind of moved toward it. So I had moved to create a destiny from just such a little beginning. And so I think about that with our teenagers. What little beginnings are going to lead to a destiny for them? And I'm so grateful that Gil has set aside the time to be part of this and and make it happen in the beginning. And I I think there's probably not so many teenagers. Um, There's two that I know of for sure and maybe some more. I've met two of them. But it's just so exciting to think about his moving forth with just a few people but such an important time in their lives. The reason I focus on that is that I had spent some time with an organization called the Challenge Learning Center, which I had the good fortune to start back in 1989. And it provides training for young people 
using the out of doors, taking people out into the redwoods, climbing and solving problems together and spending uh, retreats, nights out, and helping young people feel a sense of community and family. So this Challenge Learning Center experience led me to Woodside High School one day, and I was working with a group on developing some public speaking skills so that teens could go out into the community and tell others about what was up for them. It occurred to me and others that there's so much in the newspapers that we form our impression of teenagers from that maybe not accurate and maybe not whole. So I was working with these teenagers and I looked on the wall and there was a poster that had a phrase from James Taylor and it said, we are all united under the wish that our young people grow up strong and free. I thought, yeah, that that is the key to the future, to have our young people grow up strong and free. Again, liberation. I brought it up with the teenagers and I said, how does it sound to you to grow up strong and free? And they said, you know, strong makes a lot of sense. We need strength. We need the skill. That's what we're working on. But free, how can we ever be free? We're in our families until we grow up and go get jobs, and then we're underneath our boss, and then we're paying taxes, and we have responsibilities. How can we ever, ever be free? I, I can imagine the, the thought, how can we ever be free at that age? And I had just let my company go and was experiencing all this freedom. And I thought, how to pass that on? How to let them know that liberation is as close as our breath? And it's really, it's a process of the mind being at source. So our teen program kicks off. I want to share a few words from what's called the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. Mahaparinibbana Sutta. It's about the last days of the Buddha. It's uh, one of the long discourses that we say is of the Buddha, although the words were not written down until hundreds of years after the Buddha. So I like to think of these as Buddha-inspired words. The collection called The Long Discourses is the longest of all the long discourses, Mahaparinibbana Sutta. So this is in 
a place called Magadha. Thus I have heard once the Blessed One dwelt in Rajagaha on a hill called Vulture's Peak. Thereupon the Blessed One entered the hall of audience and taking the seat prepared for him, he exhorted the monks saying, Now, O monks, I say to you, these teachings of which I have direct knowledge and which I have made known to you, these you should thoroughly learn, cultivate, develop, and frequently practice, that the life of purity may be established and may long endure for the welfare and happiness of the multitude, out of compassion for the world, for the benefit, well-being, and happiness of men. Of course, he meant women as well. So he's saying, as I read this, that the practice is a life of purity that may be established and may long endure that we all individually can experience. But in addition to that life of purity, the practice involves being concerned with the welfare and the happiness of the multitude out of compassion for the world, for the benefit, well-being, and happiness of men. The Blessed One said to the monks, So monks, I exhort you, all compounded things are subject to vanish. Strive with earnestness. The time of my passing is near. Three months hence, I will utterly pass away. So it goes on and tells about the last three months. And he moved north in India. And the word went out. He had touched many lives and many hearts. And... People came from all over and were moving north at the same time and seemed to know that this was a major event for the Sangha at that time. And as the Buddha was moving north, there's a piece about an interaction with Ananda, who is the Buddha's cousin. And Ananda is often written about. He had he was greatly revered by the Buddha and by everybody. And this is a story about the Buddha and Ananda moving north uh, and trying to find fresh water. And what they found was turbid water. And the Buddha said, Ananda, I would like to have some water to drink. And Ananda went to fetch the water and came back and he said, Master, there is no fresh water. It's only turbid water. And so the story goes on. But a second time the Blessed One made his request and the Venerable Ananda answered him as before. And then a third time the Blessed One says, Please bring me some water, Ananda. I am thirsty and want to drink. Then the venerable Ananda answered, saying, So be it, Lord. And he took the bowl and went to the stream. And the shallow water, which had been cut through by the wheels, 
so that it flowed turbid and muddy, filled the container. And as Ananda approached the Buddha, he noticed it had become clear and settled down, pure and pleasant. Then the venerable Ananda thought, marvelous and most wonderful indeed is the power and the glory of this settling. And he took the water in the bowl and carried it to the Blessed One and said, Marvelous and most wonderful indeed is the power and the glory of settling. For this shallow water, which has been cut through by the wheels so that it flowed turbid and muddy, became clear and settled down, pure and pleasant as I drew near. Now let the Blessed One drink, let the Happy One drink, and the Blessed One drank the water. Well, it strikes me as being very uh, wonderfully symbolic, and I'm sure that the people that carried on the oral tradition of this story and then wrote this story down knew the symbolism of turbid waters and of the settling of the practice of the teachings. It seems a perfect symbol the settling being part of the liberation. So life, which is what water often symbolizes, may be a turbulent stream. In the flow of life, with the churning and the turbulence in the water, it's not clear. And yet we can take our vessel and dip it into the water and let it settle. Let that piece settle. The stream won't settle. The stream, the nature of the stream is to be turbid. But the vessel that we have, that we can reach forth with and we can select from that life, that vessel can settle. The last part I want to read to you is from a part of the story after the Buddha died. And it's often written about that this was the most horrible and the most wonderful time for the Sangha. It was the most horrible because they missed their guiding light. But it was also the most wonderful because he had taught all the way through his lifetime that there was to be a letting go and that ultimately nothing is permanent and that all will move and change. And so he moved through that himself. And after seven days later, it says, some monks not yet freed from passion lifted up their arms and wept. Some flinging themselves on the ground, rolled from side to side and wept, lamenting, too soon has the Blessed One come to his Parinibbana. Too soon has the Happy One come to his Parinibbana. Too soon has the eye of the world vanished from sight. Now, at the time, one Subhada, 
who had renounced only in his old age, meaning that he had become part of the Sangha only recently in his old age, was seated in the assembly. And he addressed the monk saying, Enough, friends, do not grieve, do not lament. We are well rid of the great ascetic. Too long, friends, have we been oppressed by his saying, This is fitting for you, that is not fitting for you. Now we shall be able to do as we wish, and what we do not wish, that we shall not do. But the venerable Maha Kasapa addressed the monk, saying, Enough, friends, do not grieve, do not lament, for has not the Blessed One declared that with all that is dear and beloved, there must be change, separation, and severance? Of that which is born, come into being, compounded, and subject to decay. How can one say, may it not come to dissolution? So the word nibbana, or nirvana in the Sanskrit, is composed of two pieces, ni, meaning the negation, and bana, which means to clutch or to hold in one sense or to weave in another sense. So what we are hearing is that the end of practice, liberation, leads to not holding and not weaving in the sense of nibbana. So, two pieces, two pieces of liberation. One, the wisdom to see that we have in our body, in our hands, in this very room, that which we need, which is the mind at source. And that we have the second piece, which the Buddha talked about, in the last three months, especially, the practice of giving it away, of compassionately reaching out to other people, men, he said, other people, and making this liberation available. So that's where I'm left as far as this thought, these thoughts about liberation. Two pieces the wisdom to see it, and the compassion to give it away. So this is from the Dhammapada, 
which is writings on Buddhist philosophy. It's a compendium of um, how the mind works and uh, psychology, Buddhist psychology, I should say. It says, there is no fire like greed, no crime like hatred, no sorrow like separation, no sickness like hunger of heart, and no joy like the joy of freedom. Health, contentment, and trust are your greatest possessions, and freedom your greatest joy. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of living in the way of freedom. So I'd like to sit just a few minutes with the thought of apprehending the wisdom that's just here and also living our lives that we give that away. Having the mind at source. Experiencing the joy of having the mind at source. And then finding every way we can to give that away. So we'll sit for a couple minutes and then I'll ring the bell and then if there's a thought or a concern you may have, we'll have a few minutes before we break up as a group. is liberation. Does everyone hear her thoughts? I'll repeat them. Correct me if I don't get them right. Her thought is, how does one deal with love where there's an attachment, such as romantic love, where there's lots of opportunity for pain. <laughs> Excellent question. And what I hear sitting with that question is, um, the words of uh, 
Joseph Goldstein, who I had the opportunity to sit with back in Barry, Massachusetts, from my favorite Dharma experience, a six-week retreat that I had two years ago. And he said, you know, there's nothing wrong with clinging. Clinging has this bad reputation in Buddhist circles, but there's really nothing wrong with clinging. Uh, the only thing to be aware of is to cling mindfully so that you know that you're clinging. <laughs> Easier said than done. But I think there's, there's a lot of wisdom to that. There's nothing wrong with longing for, you know, Baskin-Robbins ice cream. I remember... Uh, at this retreat uh, where the meals were very simple and so forth. About every week, somebody would go out and buy a whole bunch of Baskin-Robbins ice cream. And they would bring in, you know, I mean, there'd be a table stacked high with cartons of Baskin-Robbins ice cream. And you could see these slow-moving yogis walking by in in the eyes, (laughs) you know. (laughs) I wonder if there's any Cherry Garcia left. Uh, And uh, to do that mindfully, I think, you know, we are creatures of clinging. We, We want, we long. We want to grow. We want to have safety. We want companionship. There's so many things that we want. But to do so with with an awareness rather than being driven by it. And that's when I shared the story about the oceanographer thought. I wasn't mindful. I heard that thought and I was moving just like down a railroad track until four years later I finally woke up and realized it wasn't me. So thank you. May you have many mindful clinging Opportunities in your life. Any other thoughts about liberation? That was good. Well, we're just about at an end. I brought along an article that you may have seen. It's in the New Tricycle, the Buddhist Review, and it's on Buddhist parenting. And it talks about something that you're saying, you know. uh, Our children are perfect examples of our attachment, how much we care for these creatures and how we would die for them. We would do anything to help them have a free life and a strong life. How we're united under that wish, not only for my children, me for my children, but for all children. And so this article looks at how you can live with the thoughts of impermanence, emptiness, and still raise kids. So I wanted to read a couple things from it because I think it has a lot to say about liberation.
says, freedom from fear. To be in a Buddhist practice means to sit every day in the faith that such freedom is possible. And yet the fact is that we know it is a life's work, perhaps many lives' work, to make even a beginning. Still in schools across America, children are learning about Rosa Parks, Mahatma Gandhi, David Ben-Gurion, Nelson Mandela, coming home with the idea that freedom is attainable and real, just around the corner, perhaps. And yet, we conceal the truth from these, from our children. We conceal the truth of the insatiability of desire, the radical truth of impermanence, the noble truth of the, of the ubiquity of suffering. So we have the inspiration on the one hand and the clouding on the other hand. As we become adults, we come into knowing the, the pain of loss, of relationships that don't work, of companies that dissolve out from underneath us, of families who don't understand us. And I think we do a disservice to children if we don't let them know that there is this challenge, there is this difficulty in life. And so the author, who's a uh, writer named David Neal, goes on to say, but it seems to me there is no lie as bad as when we whitewash the possibility of freedom, of happiness. Happiness is a complex issue, that it's tied inextricably to the practice of freedom, which is frightening and difficult, is life. In fact, we know that life itself is bearable only insofar as we can devote ourselves to a constant, time-consuming, and often enormously painful practice of awareness, presence, and do so with a lion's heart for love. So I like that, that the whitewash dissolves and we're left with the truth that life is hard, impermanent, unsettling, unreliable. But we are born with a lion's heart and we're up for it. How boundless and free is the sky of awareness. How bright the full moon of wisdom. Truly, is anything missing now? Nirvana is right here, right before our eyes. This very place is the lotus land. This very body, the Buddha. So as Buddhas, we go forth to our lives. May they be filled with liberation and may we have lots of opportunity to realize for ourselves the joy of freedom and to give it away.